Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is a crowd podcast. From behind a red curtain, a small figure approaches the microphone. The audience falls quiet. Her hair's golden blonde, her lips cherry pink. She wears jeans, a Gucci jacket, Christian Louboutin sandals. And inside, as she jokes to reporters, is a Murphy. There haven't been many jokes. It's spring 2003. Two days before the president appears on American television, from the Oval Office, George W. Bush speaks in a somber, serious voice. He announces the start of war. In the Persian Gulf, 40 Tomahawk missiles streak into the night and the invasion of Iraq begins. Hollywood is finding its voice. It's adjusting its tone. The award night's presenters and winners condemn the war. They call for Bush to be voted out. But Brittany Murphy doesn't do either. She doesn't do what's expected. She doesn't follow the script. She pauses. She smiles. And reads the first name on the five-actor shortlist for the year's breakthrough performance. And then immediately begins to open the envelope with the winner's name. There are shouts from the audience. Murphy stops, startled. She rolls her eyes at her own mistake. She reads out another name. But then again goes for the envelope. More shouts from the audience. A stage manager rushes from the wings. He whispers in her ear. Brittany listens intently. She continues down the shortlist, mispronouncing the nominees, swapping first names for second names. Finally, triumphantly, she announces the winner. But it barely registers with the audience. They're still trying to work out what they've just seen. What is Brittany doing? Or what has she done before getting on stage? Variety, Hollywood's trade newspaper, describe her as confused and rambling. It's nod and wink shorthand for actors under the influence. But others view it differently. A critic in the front row sees a screwball comedy, Brittany turning a simple task into a high-wire act, one you can't take your eyes off. From him, it's a slapstick skit, one that bites back at Hollywood's self-importance. That's what it's like being Britney. For her, Hollywood's a hall of mirrors. There's a different image, a different Britney, wherever she looks, whoever she listens to. For some, she's a comic sidekick. For others, a screen siren. Is she on the rise or washed up? Underappreciated or overpromoted? A victim or part of the problem? Sometimes in Hollywood, when you're looking for reality, all you find are others' reflections. And eventually, even Brittany herself is lost. Alicia Silverstone has taken a new route to fame. 
As she sits in on auditions, the teenagers trying to win a part alongside her don't recognise her from movies. They know her from something else, something far cooler. She's the star of three Aerosmith videos that spin 24 hours a day on MTV. The details differ, but each role is essentially the same. Pouting beauty, youthful high times and attitude. The request line rings long and loud for her. The stadium rock that plays over her scenes is going out of fashion. There's a counterculture rising, grungy, underground and angry. But Alicia? Alicia's right on trend. She's the headline name on a new project, her first lead role, her first major film. It's called Clueless. It's a film to mark the end of history. It's malls and mindless consumption. A celebration of vapid girls and vacuous boys. At least, it is if you don't look too hard. Because Clueless is more than that. It's set in Beverly Hills, but the plot's from the rolling hills of 19th century England. It's a retelling of a Jane Austen novel. Eternal themes of sex, love, class and coming of age, all done up in designer wear. Alicia is sitting in on auditions for Ty Frazier, a character who will transform from nerd to social superpower. In the dark, alongside the director and writer, she's looking for someone who can charm and change. And into the spotlight walks Brittany. She talks fast and laughs often. There's life and spark. Her excitement is barely contained. But when she acts, there's control. She can be as comic as a caricature, all eyes, expression and decibels. But she can do subtle too. The slight arch of an eyebrow, a tiny glint in her eye, a private joke down the barrel delivered direct to each audience member. You can't help but like her. Alicia can't help but love her. In the darkness, she turns to the director. She whispers excitedly, saying she thinks Brittany might be perfect. The director looks at her slowly, unimpressed. Not because she disagrees, but because it's the most obvious casting call she's ever had to make. Brittany is signed up on the spot. Clueless is about high school kids, but Brittany and Alicia are the only teenagers in the cast. They spend time together offset. When the cameras stop rolling, they hang out or grab food, their mothers alongside them. That's how it always is with Brittany. She and her mother Sharon are less like parent and child, more like best friends. In a way, they grew up together. Brittany's father's a New York Italian, a mobster who spends 12 years in prison and only two with Brittany. After he leaves, it's just the two of them. Sharon and Brittany. And Brittany makes enough noise for both. She says a first word at six months. By four, she's at stage school, singing, dancing, acting. She puts on a show and never stops. At nine, she's in local theatre in New Jersey. By 13, Sharon sells up the home and moves their small family to LA. Together, they chase the dream. And between them, they divide the labour. Brittany does the auditions, picking up sitcom roles and earning the money. Sharon does the rest, balancing bills, driving the car and sorting their lives away from the cameras. And when Clueless lands in the cinemas, it makes both their lives more complicated. It's a roaring commercial success, but it goes deeper. It soaks into the fabric of teen America. Its catchphrases echo in school halls, 
Its fashions spread into small towns and its stars are catapulted into the big time. Britney's a girl looking to graduate, to leave high school behind, to define herself as a young female actor. But she's not the only one looking to define who Britney Murphy is. There's a squeak as tires bump onto warm tarmac. Palm trees sway beyond the runway. As the cabin door opens, warm, humid air rushes up to greet her. This isn't Los Angeles. It's not even close. It's 3,000 miles away. It's Puerto Rico. But when you've been pushed to the margins, this is where your career takes you. In Puerto Rico, small budgets go a long way. The government lures directors with hefty tax breaks, year-round sun and some colonial-era locations. It's nearly 15 years since Clueless, and Britney's trajectory is nearly complete, from the first curve of a rise to the bottom of a descent. Between the two, she goes everywhere. She does light comedy. She plays roles with cartoon cuteness. She wrings every last box office dollar out of so-so scripts. But she also does dark. She shows she can mix the glitter with the grit. On Eight Mile, she struggles with one part of her role. She's required to flick a middle finger. It's something she's never done. Not on screen, never in the street either. Her co-star is Eminem, and he has plenty of practice. At the start of filming, he teaches her. Thumb splayed out, middle finger tall and proud. By the finish, she's nailed it, and the rest? She brings trashy glamour and tenderness to Detroit's dingy streets. She wins praise and grabs attention. Three years later, she's Shelley in Sin City. It's blood-spattered film noir, a swirling world of violence and death. In one scene, she wields a knife and threatens to cut off a man's penis. On the poster, she's smouldered in heavy eyeshadow, black bra and pants and little else. Britney's come a long way from the pastel and plaid of Clueless. But now, in Puerto Rico, she's even further. She's there to shoot the caller. This isn't a film to define Britney, to expand her range, to build a reputation. It's a payday. A film fated to sink without trace. A horror plot of cheap thrills and a once expensive star. And it isn't the first. Because Britney has fallen short of standards, she doesn't match up to the ideals set by studios. Before she was even in her teens, she dissects her own appearance. Her hair is initially the target for her self-hate. In Clueless, it's part of a character, a contrast to Alicia's sleek, blonde look. But it doesn't last long. It gets straighter, lighter with every film. And Britney's body changes too. The full teenage cheeks melt away. Her nose is sculpted by the surgeon's scalpel. Her forearms sharpen as bones surface under skin. She drinks more coffee. She eats less. She's only five foot two inches tall, but she thinks being thinner will make her look taller. Her teeth are capped. Her eyelashes fake. Her bathroom is crowded with cosmetics. Every surface crowded with potions and lotions. In another age, It'd be her eyes that assess the change, that judge her look. In the golden age of Hollywood, 
Stars hunted beauty in relative privacy. But not now, not in the noughties. A decade when celebrity is bought and sold 24 seven and your stocks can soar or crash overnight. The media has been unleashed. It's no longer shackled to column inches and deadlines. It's not limited by printing presses and distribution networks. It's moving online, where stories can be published at the push of a button, where images are downloaded and blown up in an instant. It's a wild west rush towards the internet, a race to capture clicks and young eyeballs. Small names make the first success. Salacious blogs print rumors that would never make it past lawyers elsewhere. Perez Hilton, an unknown freelance writer, starts chipping the gloss off Hollywood's bright young things in 2004. TMZ, with sources all over the celebrity scene, launches a year later. Where they break ground, the industry's big beasts follow. Tabloids tap phones to find out about love lives. Magazines revel in any sign of fat or a fashion mishap. Television shows probe, pry and poke fun. Nothing is off limits. Breakups, breakdowns, addictions and overdoses. It all sells. And Britney's weight loss and rumoured drug use are fodder for the machine. The flashbulbs pop, the speculation never stops. And for Britney, it feels like there's nowhere to escape. No one to trust. No one except Simon. Britney's love life gets off to a late start. She doesn't date until she's 21. Then a relationship with co-star Ashton Kutcher feeds her profile and fuels her insecurities. Long lens photos of them on the beach, close-ups of them courtside at a basketball game, others on the red carpet. Ashton, a foot taller, towering over her. After they break up, she searches for security. She's engaged to a talent manager, He's seven years older, but they break it off after four months. She gets engaged again. Again, he's older. Again, he's out of the public eye. Again, the wedding never happens. And then, Simon Monjack appears. He's from a different world. Simon's brought up in London's leafy suburbs, the son of a banker and a designer. He's a young man with creative pretensions and the wealth to sustain them. And in an era, happy to indulge him. It's the early 90s and something's happening in London's cultural scene. A new wave of artists is emerging. Hedonistic, enigmatic, iconic. Simon sees it early. He invests a bit of money into an exhibition. It's in an old travel agency on a cobbled street in the West End. In a humid upstairs room, butterflies emerge from cocoons and fly around a room surrounded by white canvases. Downstairs, Dead butterflies are painted into darker pictures. Ashtrays, overflowing with cigarette butts, stand on a central table. It's Damien Hirst's first solo show, and as the artist explodes in popularity, Simon exaggerates. As time passes, the stories get more outlandish. Simon masterminds the Brit art movement. He owns 200 paintings by Hirst. His art collection is worth more than 200 million pounds. He's a creative in the film industry, a photographer for Vogue. None of it's true, not really. But he tells it with conviction, with confidence, with a cut glass English accent. 
He keeps the stories moving and he keeps himself moving. He stays one step ahead of his last set of investors, always on the lookout for the next opportunity. And after pitching a film to Brittany, he becomes her boyfriend. His devotion is total. His belief in Brittany's ability to resurrect her career is complete. And when his American visa expires just four months later, he becomes her husband. It's a rushed ceremony. There's no engagement announcement. There's not even a venue. They marry in the grounds of Brittany's house. None of Simon's family or friends are there. His best man is Brittany's chauffeur. As they land in Puerto Rico, he's by her side, telling her the same thing. The studios have blackballed her. Her friends have sold her out. The media have it in for her. But together, they can beat them all. Brittany lasts just one day on the shoot for the caller, then she's replaced. Another actress is brought in. Some reports blame Simon's drunkenness and aggression, but Simon says it's a lie. And Simon should know. Hey, hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. Brittany's house is on Rising Glen Road. It's a snaking avenue that climbs into the Hollywood Hills off Sunset Boulevard. On each side are mansions, hidden behind steel gates and high fences, and Brittany's is at the very top of the hill. It's split over three levels. There are five bedrooms, a pool, and views out far over a lazy LA skyline below. Brittany buys it at the height of her career for nearly $4 million. But, you see, it comes with a past. Another Brittany, Brittany Spears, is the previous owner. She sells up after her relationship with Justin Timberlake falls apart in painfully public view. Murphy's crisis is more private. It's Hollywood's dirty secret. Legal drugs illegally dispensed. She has health problems. A car crash from 15 years earlier still gives her pain. She has occasional seizures. Her periods are irregular and heavy, leaving her drained and weak. But the prescription medication that spills from the bathroom cabinets in that mansion, that covers more, far more. There's antidepressants, antibiotics, painkillers, anti-inflammatories, beta blockers, a whole pharmacy of drugs. Every Friday, a courier drives up Rising Glen Road and delivers an envelope. Across the front is scrawled a name, Lola. Inside are bottles rattling with pills. They aren't for Brittany, not according to the prescriptions. They're for Lola Manilo, a showgirl name that's just for show. It's just one of the fake identities Brittany uses to order drugs from LA chemists. Simon says it's necessary to keep her health problems out of the news. But Tinseltown 
is a town that talks. Rumours spread fast, and given to the right journalist, they pay well too. Simon sees a deeper conspiracy, surveillance and sabotage, dark forces attempting to infiltrate their lives and bury Britney's career. That's why there are the cameras. 56 that cover the house and its gardens at all times. There's biometric door locks. There's a system that scrambles the phone lines to prevent conversations being recorded. So as Brittany and Simon return from Puerto Rico with heavy colds, they don't venture out. They don't go to the doctor. Instead, they treat themselves. They squirt nasal sprays and slurp down cough syrup. Brittany's period pain leaves her cold and cramped. Her blood thins. She pops more pills. Her lungs feel tight. She's short of breath and tired, so tired. Finally, on a Friday night, she folds. She books a doctor's appointment for the following Monday. She'll take a chance and hope it stays out the papers. But she never makes it. At 3 a.m. on Sunday, she wakes and staggers weakly to a balcony. She gulps down the chill morning air. She sips weakly at some tea and wanders, light-headed, to a small ensuite bathroom. There, surrounded by mirrors, cosmetics and drugs, she collapses. Her lips blue, her frail body splayed on the floor. The ambulance is there in nine minutes, but the time has already been lost in the days and weeks before. The delays and the deterioration have gone on too long. The coroner rules that pneumonia killed Brittany. He says the illness rampaged through a body weakened by a heavy period, fatty eating, and a cocktail of prescription drugs. And he says it didn't have to be this way. She'd been sick at least two weeks, he says into the microphones. Had they taken her to a doctor or a hospital, it would have been treatable. It's the end of a life, but for the media, it's just another chapter of the story. The reaction comes in real time. The paparazzi are waiting for Simon and her mother Sharon as they return home from hospital. Ashton Kutcher tweets that the world has lost a little piece of sunshine. Anonymous sources tell how Britney would slip out of consciousness mid-take in some of her later films. Britney's gone, but in death, she has another role the most prominent one for years. She's the tragic victim of a real-life mystery. Simon comes under the spotlight. His past is trawled over, his half-truths and outright lies exposed. And he talks, as he always does, when the questions come. He appears on late-night chat shows, clutching Sharon to his side. He explains the love he had for Brittany. He tells of how he played piano for her as she lay at his feet. He invites a camera crew into their home and, cigar in hand, he shows them the bathroom where Brittany dies and the rails of designer clothes she leaves behind. There are theories and rumours on message boards, on social media. And then, five months after Brittany's death, Simon dies too. In the same house, of the same causes. Pneumonia mixed with anemia. 
and the story goes into overdrive. Poisoning, plots, greed, lust, a secret relationship between Brittany's mother and Simon. There's even a theory toxic mold is festering in the house. None of it is ever proved. And maybe it doesn't matter. Because the death certificate can only describe what killed Brittany on that one Sunday night. And that's not the whole story. That's not why she died. Her demise goes back further. Whatever the physiology, the psychology is clear. Brittany's a victim of an era, of an industry, of a man. And no coroner can detect that. This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Charlie Frost. For research, we read from the archives of The Hollywood Reporter, Vogue, Vanity Fair, The Independent, MTV and The Wrap. The music we used is from our partners BMG Production Music. If this is your first episode, go back and listen to our one about Chadwick Boseman, the man who played Jackie Robinson, James Brown and Black Panther and died as a pioneer and icon himself. And if you want a whole new podcast series, then search for Death of a Rockstar. We've made episodes about Amy Winehouse, Lisa Left Eye Lopez, and Prince. All of them beautifully written and well worth your time. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts.